All right, well, uh, let's begin, shall we? Uh, weathermen, weathermen predict the weather, don't they? Uh, not always accurately, uh, but they do predict the weather uh, from time to time. And uh, well, uh, I'm just getting ahead of myself here. The weathermen predict the weather. Stock market analysts, well, they try and predict what's gonna happen in the stock market, right? Are stock prices going up? Are they going down? Because they're trying to figure out how to make money off the stock market. Uh, Las Vegas bookies, they watch a lot of football games. They set point spreads. They're trying to predict the future, trying to figure out uh, the outcome of games. And so uh, what these people all have in common is that they're trying to predict the future, right? And people have been doing this uh, since the beginning of time, trying to predict the future. Uh, and so uh, here are a couple of uh, predictions about the future that did not age very well. Uh, in July or in June 1955, Variety magazine came out uh, with this story about rock and roll and said, ah, rock and roll, it'll be dead by June of 1955. Uh, that one did not age very well. Uh, Decca Records refused to sign the Beatles. They said uh, the, the day of four-piece groups, uh, boy groups with acoustic guitars and guitars, those days are over. So Decca passed on uh, the Beatles, a big mistake. In 1903, uh, the Michigan Savings Bank told uh, Henry Ford, you better save your money because uh, cars, they're, they're just a novelty, they're just a fad. Uh, that'll, never, that'll never catch on. In 1876, uh, the president of Western Union uh, Bank dismissed phones as a toy when Alexander Graham Bell uh, offered to sell him his patent on the phone for $100,000. And uh, most famously and most recently, Microsoft uh, CEO uh, Steve Ballmer predicted in 2007 that there's no chance that the iPhone will ever gain any significant market share. No chance! And so uh, famous, famous predictions uh, that have gone wrong, right? So uh, most predictions don't come true. Uh, but for a true prophet, all of his predictions do come true. And in fact, there are two tests of a prophet in the Old Testament, particularly, particularly in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 13 uh, says that uh, a prediction, even if, God's, uh, even if God uh, sends someone who predicts the future and it does come true, and yet he tells you to go away from God or don't follow God, don't follow him. He is a false prophet sent by God to uh, test you. Uh, so uh, he has to be someone who points to God. He must lead people to God. And in Deuteronomy 18, uh, that says that if a prophet's words do not come true, well, he is not a true prophet. Uh, they're not from God, and you kill that prophet. So today we're studying uh, the beginning now in the book of Daniel. Daniel is the story of the faithfulness of a great man and the sovereignty of a great God. And so you may be asking, thinking to yourself, why Daniel? Why now? Why are we picking this book to study? And the first one is that Daniel passed both of those tests of a prophet. So his words are in scripture and all scripture is worthy of study. Uh, his, his, he was faithful to God. His prophecies came true. Uh, and, and so there's much we can learn from this book. Daniel is the study of a, of a faithful man uh, living in an unfaithful world uh, in a way uh, and in a world very much similar to our world, right? Uh, Daniel was a, a young man uprooted from everything he ever knew, right? Taken from Israel, transplanted into Babylon, into a place with uh, customs and culture and language that were completely unfamiliar to him. So how did Daniel manage to stay faithful and pure uh, in a world like that, uh, so much unlike uh, the world that he knew? 
Now, for you and I, we may not have been uprooted and transplanted into a different culture, uh, but the world has changed around us, hasn't it? Uh, We now are, as Christians, we are a minority. Uh, We are not a majority anymore. Uh, Decidedly, we are a minority. And we're living in a mostly pagan world that defines morality uh, however it wants to, uh, and it rejects biblical truth. And so we're going to face the same challenges that Daniel faced in his world. And he lived 2,600 years ago, and yet everything that we read about in Daniel is just as relevant to us today as it was then. How should we respond when our faith is challenged, when our welfare is threatened because we stand for biblical truth? Uh, How do we respond when when people say uh, there's no such thing as absolute truth, Uh, when everyone defines what is true for themselves, when even gender and sexuality are fluid and and decided by the person uh, on any given day uh, in the eye of the beholder? Uh, So Daniel will help us with these questions. How do we answer questions like these? So that's the story of, of a faithful man living in faithless times. From the divine perspective, Daniel also helps us to appreciate the sovereignty of God. Uh, It's amazing, the book of Daniel, as we get into it, what we're going to see about God's sovereignty. Uh, The world is in absolute chaos right now, isn't it? I mean, everywhere you look, the world is in chaos. But any more so than when Daniel lived? I mean, I don't think so. Daniel had his land invaded, right, by a foreign invader. uh, And he'd been captured and carried away. Uh, Imagine you uh, living peacefully here in Texas and uh, North Korea, Russia, China invades, kidnaps you, plucks you up and uh, plops you down in their world. That's what Daniel experienced. And so amidst all the chaos that Daniel experienced, uh, God showed Daniel and and many others uh, in the book through Daniel that he is absolutely sovereign over all things. He has a plan and everything that God plans comes to pass. And so Daniel trusted God and, and we, you and I, we need constant reminding that God is sovereign and that we can trust him. So let me say right from the outset that Uh, Of all the books in the Bible, all the prophetic books in the Bible, I think Daniel is the most incredible book in the Bible in terms of the specificity and the accuracy of these predictions that have all or many have come true. Uh, In fact, it's so accurate that that critics of the Bible and specifically critics of the book of Daniel say there is no way, no way that Daniel could have written this book in the 6th century before all these events took place. This book had to be written in 165 BC after the last of the events that Daniel predicted occurred because it's impossible for anybody to predict these events. Uh, events with such accuracy and such specificity. Uh, And so they accuse Daniel of actually writing history or somebody writing in Daniel's name of writing history rather than believing that Daniel wrote predictive prophecy before it happened. So if Daniel wrote predictive prophecy before these events happened, well, that's what critics have a problem with, right? They, they, they would have to admit that God speaks through his prophet, uh, prophets, that he's sovereign over events. He's sovereign over what happens in the world. And that's a problem for those who deny God and his very existence on the one hand, and, and even for people who admit you know, to, to God, believe in God in some abstract kind of way, but don't believe that God necessarily uh, orders the events or is sovereign over his creation. Uh, so uh, the, the, the specificity, accuracy of Daniel's 
predictions have, have created uh, a problem for critics uh, throughout the centuries. Uh, one of the more famous early critics uh, of Daniel was a guy named Porphyry. And he wrote 15 books or so in the second century. And, and this one in particular uh, kind of gives away his position regarding Christianity. Uh, against the Christians, he called his book. Uh, and, and the arguments that he makes in this book against why uh, or how Daniel could have written uh, in the sixth century before these events have taken place have pretty much been the blueprint for how all critics to Daniel have responded uh, to him. Uh, he just argued that, that these are too specific, too accurate, too de detailed to possibly have been written by Daniel. So uh, I just want to, for a second, just give a couple of brief arguments about why Daniel and how Daniel could have written this book and why we ought to trust its authenticity. Uh, the arguments for and against are quite complicated and complex, and I'm not going to get into all of it, but just let me give you a few pieces of evidence uh, to show you that Daniel was, in fact, written in the 6th century uh, before these events took place. And, and the first one that we can't overlook is that Daniel claimed himself uh, to have written the book. Uh, and so to say he didn't would call his character into question. And uh, we know from reading the book that Daniel proves to be a man of the very highest character throughout uh, his story. Secondly, uh, the Jews believed that Daniel wrote the book, uh, which is why uh, it made it into the Old Testament canon. If they didn't believe he had written it, uh, they would not have admitted that book into the Old Testament uh, because, of, uh, because of their belief that, that they wouldn't admit something that he hadn't written. So they admitted it into the book, uh, into the Bible. Uh, here's an interesting one. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus uh, records that when Alexander the Great uh, came to Jerusalem, now this is 335 BC, uh, when he came to Jerusalem, uh, the high priest went out to meet him and he showed him the book of Daniel. Uh, and Alexander the Great was so impressed by the prophecies that Daniel had written that he himself was fulfilling that rather than destroying the temple, uh, he actually went into the temple and worshipped in the temple, in Jerusalem's temple. Now, scholars debate that one, whether that could actually have happened or not. But if it's true, uh, then certainly the book of Daniel existed before 335 BC, well before uh, the critics say that Daniel uh, could have written this book. And a last piece of evidence is simply that Jesus believed that Daniel wrote this book. And that one right there is good enough for me, right? Of all the other ones, if Jesus thought Daniel wrote it, I believe Daniel wrote it. Uh, so critics want to say Daniel could not have written the book. But in Matthew 24, uh, verse 15, Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those in who are Judea who must flee to the mountains. So uh, last one's pretty good piece of evidence, but four pieces of, of evidence, you can research the arguments if you'd like on your own for the pros and cons. Uh, but I think the evidence is very strong to prove that he wrote the book. In fact, there's, there's no credible evidence to say that he didn't write the book. It's all circumstantial based on suppositions of people. Uh, and mainly they deny that he wrote the book because they want to deny that there's such a thing as predictive prophecy, that God can actually predict events and then uh, ordain that they come to pass. So for our study here, we're going to proceed as though Daniel wrote this book in the 6th century before all of the events that he uh, predicted came true. He probably wrote this book late in his life, probably about 530 BC or so, uh, toward the end of his life, which is after the last of the events uh, predicted in the book. Uh, the, the last dated event happens in 536 BC. Uh, so that's how we'll proceed.
All right, so just a couple quick notes about the text of Daniel itself. Uh, I put an outline in your bulletins this week, and uh, you can bring that with you every week if you'd like to. Nothing would make me happier than if you did that. Uh, but I want to tell you that uh, Daniel wrote this book uh, in two different languages. He wrote in Hebrew, and he wrote in Aramaic. Uh, two different languages. Well, why would he do that? Well, he wrote chapter 1 through verse uh, 2, 4 in Hebrew, and then he wrote uh, chapters 8 through 12 in Hebrew. The middle section, verse 2-4, the second half of verse 2-4, uh, through the end of chapter 7 are written in Aramaic. Now, the reason he did that was because uh, Daniel wrote about God's plan for the Gentile nations uh, in that middle section of the book, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 7. So it makes sense that that would be written in the language of the people, Aramaic. But then in chapter 1 through chapter, uh, verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, and in chapters 8 through 12, he's writing about Israel and the Gentiles' effect on Israel. And so for that reason, he wrote those chapters in Hebrew. Uh, so just interesting, two different languages, and that's why. Uh, in the first half of the book, chapter, uh, or Daniel is writing chapters 1 through 6, uh, more from in a historical perspective, and so that's written in the third person for the most part. Uh, and then when, when Daniel gets into chapters 7 through 12, where he's talking more about the dreams and visions that he experienced, then he starts writing in the first person. I, Daniel, saw this. I saw that. Uh, so uh, that's a second note. And then the last thing I just want to show you is that uh, these chapters in the book of Daniel are not written in chronological order, and you can see that on the bottom of your outline. They, they bounce around, uh, and so uh, we're going to have to keep track of that as we go, and you can follow along on the chart, and I will point out uh, in history where we are as we go through uh, the book of Daniel uh, each week. Now, historically, Babylon was the new rising power, right? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, supposed to have up, Nebuchadnezzar had plans uh, to conquer the entire world. And so there he is in Babylon. And so he advanced on Nineveh first, which was the capital of Assyria. And he conquered Assyria in 612 BC. Now, Egypt, down in uh, this part of the uh, slide, they uh, wanted to stop Babylon from uh, taking over the whole world. So Pharaoh Necho moves north this way, uh, trying to help intercept and, and, be, and uh, join what was remaining of Assyria uh, to try and fend off Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylons, uh, Babylonians. And so uh, Pharaoh, uh, Necho, and the Assyrians uh, were all defeated in 605 BC by Nebuchadnezzar at the Battle of Carchemish. And so that happened in May or June of 605 BC. So it's 605, right? Uh, now, Nebuchadnezzar is winning his battle, and as he defeats them at Carchemish, he's chasing them back to Egypt. And as he's chasing them back south, he's expanding his territory southward and near into Palestine. Uh, and just as he was on the verge of reaching Palestine and conquering Palestine, he gets word back from Babylon that his father, Nabopolassar, the king, had died. And so Nebuchadnezzar went back to Babylon uh, right after that, and he claimed the, the crown. Uh, now he's the king of the Babylonians. And then the next month, September 605, he comes back to Jerusalem and attacks Jerusalem. And this is where Daniel's story begins, uh, the first siege of Jerusalem. Okay, 
So a lot of background on the book of Daniel. Now we're ready to get into the text. Uh, Daniel's story begins when Babylon conquers Jerusalem, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. All right, so uh, Nebuchadnezzar is, is, uh, has conquered Israel, or has, has at least besieged it, and taken some of the great artifacts back with him uh, to uh, Babylon. These are the last five kings of Judah prior to the exile that lead up to the book of Daniel. So uh, in Judah, King Josiah... Uh, in uh, 609, he is the one who went out to try and help uh, the, uh, the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. He wanted to stop Pharaoh Necho from joining up with the Assyrians. And it's there that Pharaoh Necho uh, says to Josiah, why are you here? You don't need me to kill you. Just go back home again. And Josiah refuses and uh, uh, Josiah gets killed in battle there against uh, the Egyptians. And so uh, he was trying to, to gain favor with Nebuchadnezzar because he could see, he could read the tea leaves, right? He knew it was going to happen. He knew Nebuchadnezzar was going to uh, be victorious. So Josiah is dead. His son Jehoaz then becomes king. He reigns for three months, uh, but Necho also took him prisoner and exiled him to Egypt. Uh, that brings us up to uh, the third king, which is Jehoiakim. He's the king during this invasion that we're talking about, 605 BC. He's another one of Josiah's sons. Uh, then there was a second group deported to uh, Babylon in 597. So the first group goes to Babylon in 605. Second group goes in 597, and that's under uh, uh, the son of Jehoiakim, whose name was Jehoiachin. And then after he was also uh, taken prisoner, then Josiah's son Zedekiah, he became the last king. And he's the king who reigned in 586 when Jerusalem finally fell. Uh, so Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and scattered the remaining Israelites in 506. But verses 102, uh, 1 and 2, they describe what happened in 605. And this is while Jehoiakim is king. That's the third king listed up there uh, on the chart that I have. So the Lord handed over Jehoiakim to Nebuchadnezzar, along with many of the vessels of the temple. So why did God do that? Why did God allow this to happen? Well, his prophets, Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, they all prophesied that this was going to happen because of Judah's sins against God. They didn't heed the warnings, particularly the warnings of the prophets, but also they saw for themselves what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel, how Assyria came about 150 years earlier, and they conquered the northern kingdom and exiled everybody to Assyria because of their disobedience. And so the southern Jews from the kingdom of Judah did not learn the lesson. They abandoned the law, they continued to worship idols, and they remained in their immorality. They had forsaken God. And so Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Judah was simply God's discipline, his promised discipline of them. And it signaled the dawn of a new era, uh, what Luke calls in chapter 21, verse 24, the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles are the times when, when uh, the Gentiles are in control of all the land that has been promised to Abraham and his descendants, and the time when there is no rightful heir of David sitting on 
the throne of Israel. So the time of the Gentiles continued from then, it continues to today, and it will continue until the Lord Jesus returns. Well, Nebuchadnezzar brought many of the, t- of the treasures of the temple uh, back to his home, uh, to his temple uh, in the land of Shinar, which is Babylon. And he put those, those artifacts, the, the dishes and the plates and the utensils and whatever other artifacts uh, into uh, his own temple. But not only did he take all that stuff, he took the best people with him too. And that's what we see in verses three through seven. <clears throat> Then the king told Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, uh, youths in whom there was no impairment, who were good-looking, suitable for instruction in every kind of expertise, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability to serve in the king's court. And he ordered Ashpenaz to teach them uh, from the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king also allotted for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and ordered that they be educated for three years, at the end of which they were to enter into the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Mesach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So the conquest of Jerusalem. Uh, Americans, uh, we in America, we, we just can't truly understand what this was like for Daniel, can we? Like no foreign country has ever invaded our land and carried us away. Uh, just to use a, an example in geography, uh, New Orleans is about 500 miles away from, uh, from Dallas. Uh, that's eight hours by car. Now, Babylon was 500 miles from Israel through very difficult uh, terrain. Uh, Imagine New Orleans and Dallas were two separate countries, and we were invaded by New Orleans. And New Orleans came, and and they they shackled us. They put us in chains, and they they put hooks in our noses, and they dragged us off to New Orleans to live in a whole separate culture, whole separate language, whole separate ideology. Uh, Can you imagine, can you comprehend how demoralizing that would be for us proud Texans, right? Nobody's going to come in and conquer us and drag us to another culture, right? This is what Daniel's world was like. He was a child of the the God of Israel, and here he is dragged off to a foreign land. Uh, So he's carried off, leaving everything he ever knew and assuming he would never return. How demoralizing would that be? How, How would your faith be tested as you thought about why God would allow such a thing? Uh, when you are the, the, the children of Abraham. Why would God allow such a thing? And you've got a lot of time to, to mull that over in your mind and then uh, recognize the sin of your country and, and why it's right that God did this. And then you'd also have a lot of time to think about how you were going to live as a prisoner in a foreign land, in a foreign culture, uh, in your new home. Uh, how would you go about that? Well, from Nebuchadnezzar's standpoint, he's a smart guy, right? He knows how to secure the future, and he knows that the way to shape the future is to indoctrinate the youth, right? You want to get the youth. You want to get them while they're young. You want to brainwash them into Babylonian culture. And so he established criteria for the, for the young men that he wanted to enter into uh, their service. And so he only chose the best. He wanted them to be sons of Israel. He wanted them to be either be from the, the kingly line of royal descent or of the nobility, the, the elite class. 
Uh, and so that's where they came from. In fact, Josephus, if we can trust his uh, history, said that Daniel and his three friends were actually of the family of Zedekiah. So that would make them of the royal line. Uh, so they had to be from Israel, from the royal or uh, nobility. They also had to be young. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to get them while they were impressionable, while he could uh, shape the way they thought. Uh, and so Daniel and his friends were probably about 15 uh, when they came to Babylon. Now, this idea of, uh, of, of trying to uh, make a, an impression on our youth, uh, to try and get kids while they're young to think your way, uh, that strategy has been employed by the LGBT community for years, hasn't it? Uh, this, the more they show same-sex couples on television, uh, TVs, movies, etc., the more normal it becomes, right? We, we don't look away as much as we used to when we first saw it. And so we're like lab animals uh, being conditioned by the media to accept what is abnormal or to accept as normal what God says is abnormal and what is sin. And so unless we, you and I, Christians, stand for biblical truth, uh, our kids' kids are not going to know a world in which uh, gender transition and, and homosexuality uh, were, continued, uh, or were, were, were considered abnormal and widely accepted as sin. They won't know a world like that because they will have been indoctrinated, and that's why the media wants to get our kids while they're young. And this is the same strategy Nebuchadnezzar employed 2,600 years ago. Nothing new under the sun. Uh, so Nebuchadnezzar's recruits had to be without defect. They had to be handsome. They had to be smart enough to be taught in various fields of knowledge. They had to be wise. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar had this servant whose name was Ashpenaz, and his job was to immerse these youths into Babylonian culture, uh, teach these selected boys uh, the language, the literature of the Chaldeans. And so he wanted to turn, turn these Jewish boys into Babylonians. And uh, just as a note here, by the way, uh, Bible critics say that no such person as Ashpenaz ever existed. Uh, they used to say that until there were discoveries in Babylon, inscriptions on tablets that mention the name Ashpenaz. And it says, Ashpenaz, the master of eunuchs in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't that incredible that they can find uh, this kind of stuff in the sand over there uh, that, that continues to affirm uh, the, uh, the, the truth of the Bible. And every time they turn something up, uh, some other biblical uh, historical fact is confirmed. Well, the New American Standard Version that I'm reading from uh, calls Ashpenaz the chief of Nebuchadnezzar's officials. Now, your version may say uh, the eunuch, Ashpenaz the eunuch. Uh, they are translating that word, the Hebrew word saris, differently. Uh, saris could refer to a literal eunuch, somebody who has been castrated, but it could also uh, mean somebody who was serving as a governmental official. Uh, for example, in Joseph's story, when uh, it's talking about uh, the, the official Potiphar, uh, this word Saris is used to describe him, and we know that Potiphar was married. So it doesn't necessarily mean they were eunuchs in the sense of being castrated. It could mean that they were just chief officials. Um, so there's some debate on this point. Were Daniel and his friends eunuchs, or were they not? Uh, some commentators say uh, that they could not have been because uh, it says that they had to be without blemish. And obviously, if you're castrated, now you have a blemish. 
but on the other hand, it could be that they uh, entered into service without blemish, but then they were castrated later on to ensure that uh, they didn't have children who would end up being rivals who would threaten uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and as far as we know, uh, neither Daniel nor his uh, three friends ever married or had children. So uh, it's a point that's up for debate. We really don't know whether uh, Daniel was made a eunuch or not to enter into uh, the king's service. But Nebuchadnezzar's final stroke was to rename them after Babylonian gods. So uh, Daniel, uh, whose name in Hebrew means God has judged, had his name changed to uh, Bel protect his life. Uh, the, the name is Belteshazzar. Bel is synonymous with the Babylonian god Marduk. So Bel protect his life. Uh, Hananiah, uh, which means Yahweh has been gracious, became Shadrach, which means, uh, yeah, which means under the command of Aku, which is the Babylonian moon god. Uh, the next one, Mishael, his name means who is like God. Uh, his name was changed to Mesach, which means who is like Abu, the moon god. Uh, and then Azariah, uh, which means in uh, Hebrew, Yahweh is helped, was uh, named Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. Nebo is an alternate spelling of the uh, Babylonian god Nigo, uh, who was the god of agriculture and writing. And so in each case, uh, we see that the, the Hebrew boy, uh, who was named after, uh, after Yahweh in some way, has his name changed uh, to be named after in some way, referring to uh, a pagan god. So here's Daniel and his friends. They're captured like slaves, and every time they hear their new name, imagine that. Every time you hear your new name, it's like a knife in your heart, right? Twisting in your belly, uh, thinking about reminding you that you are living in a foreign land, uh, in a land that is opposed uh, to your God. Well, as I said, Nebuchadnezzar was hoping to get these boys early, but unfortunately for him, Daniel and his friends already had very firm convictions about what they would do. They were strongly committed to their God and the purity that he required. So let's look at Daniel's commitment to purity uh, in verses 8 to 10. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. The commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of the Lord my king, who has allotted your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking gaunt in comparison to the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. So Daniel is a young man with very strong faith and superior intelligence. And although the king's food uh, and drink were of the highest quality, he knew that it did not conform to the law of Moses. So, uh, for example, pork may have been on the menu, or meat which had not been fully drained of blood, that could have been on the menu, or food that had been sacrificed to pagan gods, to idols, that could have been on the menu. And God blessed Daniel's desire to want to remain pure by not wanting to eat uh, the king's food. And so uh, God gave him compassion and favor with the government official. And it says something about Daniel, I think, that, that uh, this man, uh, this official, confided in, in Daniel. And he said, 
I'm terrified of the king. I'm not going to go for this. I'm going to lose my head if I do this. Uh, And Daniel, uh, what a great response from him, right? He understands this man. He understands his fears. He knows that that for this man to defy Nebuchadnezzar is a death sentence. Uh, And so Daniel was was wise to understand his commander's fears and and to uh, respectfully propose a test because Daniel knew that this man's life was on the line as well. So Daniel proposes a 10-day test. Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please put your servants to the test for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. Well, the steward looked with favor on Daniel and his friends uh, and agreed to the experiment. And so knowing what we know now about food, uh, you know, this diet that they were going to eat was, was very rich in meat, uh, you know, probably filled with fat and cholesterol. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm sure it was delicious, no doubt about that. Uh, but I don't know how long you live eating food like that. Uh, so Daniel asked for this diet of vegetables. And vegetables is kind of a broad word. It does mean vegetables, but, but the word actually means that which grows from seed. So vegetables, fruits, grains, bread that could be made from grains, uh, all these things are included in what Daniel asked to be fed. And so uh, these foods are much healthier than a, food, than, than a diet that's rich in, in uh, fatty meats, right? And so that's what uh, he asked for. Uh, and you know, knowing what we know now, Daniel was right. That is a healthier diet, but it took a lot of courage for Daniel to, to, to step up and to ask that because rejecting the royal diet could be perceived as an insult to the king, right? You're rejecting this food, this choice food and wine that I'm giving you, uh, that's an insult. And, and also, as far as we know, uh, this servant was concerned that the other boys were going to look better than Daniel and his friends. So it seems that the other boys were going to eat Daniel, or the king's food. And so there might have been peer pressure from the, from the other Hebrew boys for Daniel to eat this food so as not to get them all killed, you know. We don't know exactly how that would have gone down. And Daniel could have adopted a, a when in Rome attitude, right? But he didn't. He decided that he was going to muster the courage, resist the temptation of the royal diet, uh, and maintain uh, the diet that God had prescribed. And he did that with great success. So uh, Daniel passes the test in verses 14 to 16. So he, the commander, listened to them in this matter and put them to the test for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. So Daniel rejected the easy life. Uh, They controlled what went into their bodies, and as a result, God blessed their obedience. He rewarded their faith. And this is a model for us today, right? Temptation comes in so many various forms, uh, and we, we have to learn to resist it. When, when people exert peer pressure on us, well, we can just respectfully decline whatever they're eating. We don't have to be hostile about it. Whatever they're offering, we can say, you know, that, that's okay, that's, that's not for me. Uh, so God will reward that decision. Uh, and so just think about the witness that Daniel was to Ashpenaz, right? I mean, Ashpenaz is no follower of Yahweh, right? He's no follower of Yahweh. He doesn't know the Hebrew God. And here's Daniel, who's, who's got the courage. Uh, you know, he's, he's putting his head uh, on the chopping block, as it were, and saying, I want to follow my Lord and God. And Ashpenaz was certainly impressed by that. 
And this is the first of, of many times that we'll see in the book of Daniel, that, that Daniel maintains his purity, he maintains his character and integrity, and uh, he influences somebody with authority over him. And at the end of, of 10 days, Daniel is, is fatter, uh, and in, the, in this context, I think that means uh, he appeared healthier uh, than his other friends. Uh, and, and so the, uh, the, the, the official agrees to continue with this diet. And so God blesses uh, their obedience with health uh, in their appearance uh, for their faithfulness and obedience. And even more blessings followed, as we see in uh, verses 17 to 21, that Daniel and his friends get appointed now to royal positions. Uh, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every kind of literature and expertise. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them. And out of them, all, not one was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered into the king's personal service. And as for, uh, as for uh, uh, every matter of expertise and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So for Daniel and his friends now, it had been three years of hard work, hard study, while faithfully walking with God. And now they are prepared to enter into uh, the king's service. And for Daniel, God protected them, and he blessed them in ways that, that they never could have imagined because of their faith. Uh, so for Daniel, aside from being a witness to many of the Gentiles who watched over him for those three years, God blessed him even further with now the ability uh, to understand and interpret visions and dreams of others. And as we'll see later in the book, to, to receive visions and dreams of his own and interpret them as well. So these four young men, uh, they get elevated uh, uh, by God's sovereignty above their peers. And Nebuchadnezzar find them, found them better than, ten times better uh, than everybody else in his kingdom, including the magicians and the conjurers. Now, we're going to encounter magicians and conjurers as we go throughout the book of Daniel. Uh, this word for magicians uh, is, is a Hebrew word that means engraver or a writer. Uh, only secondarily does it mean like a, a diviner or an astrologer or something like that. So it describes people who wrote on clay uh, in a time when people were largely illiterate. So these were, these were the wise men. These were respected people. Uh, and they were men who were chosen to be in touch with the spirit world. And they advised the king on all matters. So these were important people. And the word conjurer is closely rela related to it. It means somebody who performs spells and incantations to reach the spirit world. And we're going to see these people next week when we talk about uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar insisting that they not only tell them what the dream means, but tell them the dream. We'll see that, these folks uh, next week when we talk about that. So Daniel receives the blessings. Uh, and another blessing that he received is this blessing of long life. He survived five of Israel's kings. He survived two uh, empires, right? The Babylonian and Persian Empire. And he lived until the reign of Cyrus. And he spent at least 70 years in captivity under foreign rule. And he always proved faithful to the Lord. He influenced culture more than culture influenced him. And that's why we have a lot to learn from Daniel. So let's wrap up with a few applications. The first is to be a witness wherever God has placed you. 
Now, I'm sure Daniel didn't choose to be deported to Babylon, right? That's not where he wanted to live, but he accepted God's will and he determined to be a witness for God wherever God had placed him. Now, you and I, we live in a world that is now hostile to God and hostile to people who love God. And so our world is not exactly how we would want it to be either. Uh, it's becoming more and more spiritually dark. Uh, our family moved to Texas just over 10 years ago. And even in the 10 years that we've been here, uh, we have noticed that the spiritual darkness is creeping in even into the Bible Belt, right? It's all over and everywhere around us. And so the whole creation is groaning. And it's not the world we want, but it's the world that God has called us to live in. And he calls us to be salt and light where he has placed us. And so we will see in the coming weeks the effect that one person can have on culture. It was true of Daniel, and it can be true of us as well. The second thing is to know what you believe. You know, half the battle of defeating temptation is knowing what we believe and then having strong convictions. And to, to know God's character, uh, to behave with godly character, uh, we have to know God uh, and we have to believe in God. We have to trust that, that God is sovereign and that he sent Jesus to, to live a perfect life and die on the cross for our sins and then be raised from the dead so that you and I might have eternal life. And if we believe these things, if we have strong convictions about these things, then we will live for him as well. And so uh, living for him just simply means having thought through what are convictions, what are our convictions. Uh, and, and so that when the world comes with its temptations and its tests of us, we have already established firm boundaries. We say, no, this is a line that I will not cross, like Daniel would not cross the line of eating the king's food and drink. And so we have to know what we believe so that we're prepared when we're tempted because uh, God tells us uh, to live counterculturally, and Daniel was asked to live counterculturally. And so we, uh, we, we're, we're tempted to go along with the culture, but, but God says, swim against the tide. And so we have to know what we believe so that we can look different, so that people will ask us, what is with you? Why are you different? And we have the chance to tell them, it's because we love Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and you can know him too. So know what you believe. And then last, have the courage to live out your faith. God, God rewarded Daniel and his friends uh, for having the strength of their convictions. They lived out their faith in a hostile world and God blessed them for it. And so God's sovereignty is all over the pages of scripture. And God can use anything uh, to draw people to himself or to draw others to himself through other people. And so God's sovereignty here uh, through Daniel uh, and, and his circumstances, through this hardship of being taken to a foreign land, uh, he used all that. And God uses our difficult circumstances too to test our faith uh, and to uh, show us that, that, that we can have even stronger faith after we've gone through hardship. So have the courage to live out your faith, even if uh, you get a bad diagnosis like cancer. Have the courage to live out your faith, uh, even if your, your children and your grandchildren aren't believers. They may become believers through your faithful witness. Have the courage to live out your faith, even if your employer uh, celebrates Gay Pride Month and, and, and gives you a lot of hard time because you refuse to do that. Uh, we are a lot like Daniel. We are strangers living in a strange land now. And so we need to live out our faith in a hostile world so that God can use us to accomplish his will. And so uh, the, the pervading message of Daniel is simply to live counterculturally uh, so that we can affect the world for Jesus Christ. And that's what we'll see as we proceed through this study of Daniel. Amen.
Lord God, we just thank you for this book. Uh, we've just kicked it off, and, and we just have so much to learn from this book, Lord. We are, uh, look forward in eager anticipation to the weeks that come, uh, Lord, that we might uh, live for you in a world that is hostile to you, Lord, and so influence people uh, so that they might, uh, so, uh, Lord, believe in your son, Jesus Christ, and be saved. Lord, may we uh, live for him, and may we love him, and Lord, uh, may everything we do glorify him. And we just praise you in his precious name. Amen.